Welcome back everyone to the Revealed Thine Truth podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to say that we are now on Overcast, as well as Apple Apple Podcasts and Castro, as well as many other platforms, so do go over and subscribe and leave us a, if you'd like to uh, support us over on Apple Podcasts, we would be really appreciative if you would leave us leave us a review and a like rating over there. And also do follow us on Instagram at Thine Truth Show on Instagram. Also, if you would like to follow me on my Instagram at Coach Billy Burn. So yeah, without further ado, let's get right into it. Uh, today's episode will be on the Bath School Disaster, also known as the Bath School Massacre. So let's head into the background. Bath Township. Bath Township is a civil township located ten miles. 16 kilometers northeast of the city of Lansing in the US state of Michigan. The township covers 31 square miles, 80 kilometers, and the small unincorporated village of Bath is within its borders. The township itself is within the the Clinton County, Michigan an area of some 566 square miles. In the early 1920s, the area was primarily agricultural. After years of debate, Bath Township voters approved the creation of the Bath Consolidated School District in 1922, along with an increase in township property taxes to pay for a new school. When the school opened, it had 236 students enrolled in grades 1 to grade 12. The school's creation was controversial, but Monty Ellsworth wrote in, wrote in his book about the disaster that consolidated schools had great advantages over the smaller rural rural schools they replaced. All landowners within the township area had to pay higher ad valorem property taxes at the time of the bombing. The unincorporated village had about 300 adult residents. So, you know, at that time it was basically a smaller village. So let's go down to Andrew Kehoe. Andrew Philip Kehoe was born in Tecumseh, Michigan on February 1st, 1872 into a family of 13 children 
and attended the local high school. After graduating, Kehoe studied electrical engineering at Michigan State College in East Lansing and moved to St. Louis, where he worked as an electrician for several years. Sometime during this period, he suffered a head injury in a fall and was semi-conscious or in a coma for a period of several weeks. He later returned to Michigan and his father's farm. After his mother's death, Kehoe's father, Philip, married a much younger widow, Frances Wilder, and a daughter was born on September 17, 1911. As his stepmother attempted to light the family's oil stove, it exploded and set her on fire. Kehoe threw a bucket of water on her, but the fire was oil-based and his action spread the flames more rapidly, which engulfed and immolated her body. The injuries were fatal and she died the next day. Some of Kehoe's later neighbours in Bath believed that he had caused the stove explosion. Kehoe married Ellen Nellie Prince, Price, sorry, in 1912 at the age of 40. Seven years later, they moved to a farm outside Bath. Kehoe was said to be dependable, doing favours and volunteer work for his neighbours. He was also described as being notoriously impatient with any disagreements, and he had shot and killed a neighbour's dog that had come on his property and annoyed him by barking. <clears throat> he had beaten one of his horses to death when it did not perform to, to his expectations. So he doesn't exactly have a very good temperament. Kehoe had a reputation for frugality and was elected in 1924 as a trustee on the school board for three years and treasurer for one year. He argued strongly for lower taxes and later superintendent of the board, M. W. Keyes, said that he thought the expenditure of money for the most necessary equipment. Kehoe was considered difficult to work with, often voting against the rest of the board. Wanting his way, his own way, and arguing with the township financial authorities. He protested that he paid too much in taxes, being $10,000 in 19... Sorry, too much in taxes and tried to get the valuation of his property reduced so he would pay less in 1922. The Bath Township School tax was £12.26 on $1,000 valuation. With the, the valuation on Keogh's farm being $10,000, in 1923, the school board raised the tax to $18.80 per $1,000 valuation, and in 1926, 
the taxes went up to $19.80. This meant that Kehoe's tax liability went from $122.60 in 1922 to $198 in 1926. In June 20, in June 1926, in June 1926, sorry, Kehoe was notified that the widow of his wife's uncle, who held the mortgage on his property, had begun foreclosure proceedings. Following the disaster, Sherry Fox, who had served the foreclosure notice, reported that Kehoe had muttered if it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off this mortgage. Miss Price, the mortgage holder, also reported that Kehoe had stated, if I can't live in that house, no one else will, when she had mentioned foreclosure to him. So, you can probably already sense that he had a sort of a, a plan or an idea. Kehoe was appointed in 1925 to temporarily fill the position of town clerk, but he was defeated in the April 1926 election. This public rejection by the community angered him. Ellsworth wrote that he thought that his defeat was the reason why Kehoe had planned his murderous revenge. It's... we were getting to... later. Using the bombings to destroy the bath consolidated school and killed the community's children and many of its members in Bath Massacre. Arnie Bernstein cites Robert D. Hare's psychopathy checklist and says that Andrew Kehoe fits the profile all too well. Excuse me. Let me take a sip of water. Excuse me, right. Sorry for that, I'm back. Kehoe's neighbour, A. McMullen, noted that Kehoe had stopped working on his farm altogether for most of the preceding year, and he had speculated that Kehoe might be planning suicide. Kehoe had given him one of his, one of his horses about April 1927, but McMullen returned it for the reason. For this reason, it was discovered later that Kehoe had cut all his wire fences as part of his preparations to destroy his farm, girdling young shade trees to kill them, and cutting off his grapevine plants before putting them back on their slumps to hide the damage. He gathered. He gathered lumber and other materials and put them in the tool shed, which he later destroyed with an incendiary bomb. By the time of the bombing, Nelly Kehoe had become chronically ill with what resembled tuberculosis, for which there was no effective treatment or cure at the time. 
her frequent hospital stays may have contributed to the family's debt, Kehoe had ceased making mortgage and homeowners insurance payments months earlier. So they were <coughs> basically <coughs> to feed upon going up river, you know, trying to paddle, paddle up river, river on the Sitz Creek. So, you know, so, but that doesn't excuse what he did, but, you know, in his head, he probably thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. You know, his wife is chronically ill, you know, they are on dire streets, can't afford repayments, which obviously stopped months, months earlier, so he probably, to himself, well, I've got nothing else to lose, I need to do something drastic. Purchase and, plant and planting of school explosives. There is no clear indication of when Kehoe conceived the idea of massacring the school children and townspeople. But Ellsworth, who was a neighbour, thought that Kehoe conceived his plan after being defeated in the April 5th, 1926 township clerk election. And he probably had you know, a, a good reason for thinking that because, as we've heard, you know, he clearly doesn't like it, like it when people dis disagree with him. You know, he likes things run his way. When he loses, which obviously he lost um, the, you know, the election, he took it really badly and... You know, it's not going well for him. The general consensus of the townspeople was that he had worked on his plan at least since the previous August. Bath School Board Member M.W. Keyes was quoted by the New York Times, I have no doubt that he made his plans excuse me, last fall, 1926, to blow up the school. He was an experienced electrician and the board employed him in November to make some repairs on the school lighting system. He had ample opportunity then to plant the explosives and lay the wires for, for touching it off. Kehoe had free access to the school building during the summer vacation of 1926. From mid-1926, he began buying more than a tonne of pyrotol, an incendiary explosive used by farmers during the era for excavation and burning debris. In November 1926, he drove to Lansing and bought two boxes of dynamite at a sporting goods store <coughs> wow, really, was it that easy back then? Um, dynamite was also commonly used on farms, so his purchase of small amounts of explosive, explosives at different stores and on different dates did not raise any suspicions. 
Neighbours reported hearing explosions set off on the farm, with one calling him the dynamite farmer. Following the disaster, it was reported that Michigan State Police investigators had discovered that a considerable amount of dynamite had been stolen from a bridge construction site and that Andrew Kehoe was suspected of the theft. Investigators also recovered a container of gasoline in the school's basement. The container was rigged with a tube and investigators speculated that Kehoe had planned that the gas gasoline fumes would ignite from a spark scattering burning gasoline throughout the basement. In the undamaged section of the school it was found that Kehoe had concealed the explosives in six lengths of eaves trough pipe, three bamboo fishing rods and what were described as windmill rods that were placed in the basement ceiling. Kehoe purchased a 30 caliber Winchester bolt action rifle in December 1926. According to the testimony of Lieutenant Lyle Morse, a Michigan State Police investigator with the Department of Public Safety, further preparations. Prior to May 18th, Kehoe had loaded the back seat of his truck with metal debris capable of producing shrapnel during an explosion. He also bought a new set of tyres for his truck to avoid breaking down when transporting the explosives. He made many trips to Lansing for more explosives, as well as to the school town and his house, Ida Hall, who lived in a house next to the school, saw activity around the building on different nights during May. Early one morning after midnight, she saw a man carrying objects inside. She also saw vehicles around the building. Several times late at night, Hall mentioned these events to a relative, but they never, but they were never reported to police. Nellie was discharged from Lansing's St Lawrence Hospital on May sixteenth, and was murdered by her. her Sorry, and was murdered by her husband sometime between her release and the bombings two days later. Kehoe put her body in a wheelbarrow at the rear of the farm chicken coop, where it was where it was found in a heavily charred condition after the farm explosions and fire. Piled around the cart were silverware and a metal cash box. The ashes of several banknotes could be seen through a slit in the cash box. Kehoe placed and wired homemade pyrotold firebombs in the house and throughout the farm buildings. Day of the disaster, farm bombings. At approximately 8.45am on Wednesday, May 18th, Kehoe detonated the firebombs in his house and farm buildings, causing some debris to fly into a neighbour's poultry brooding house. Neighbours noticed the fire and volunteers rushed to the scene. O.H. Bush, 
and several other men crawled through a broken window of the farmhouse in search of survivors. When they found no one in the house, they salvaged what furniture they could before the fire spread into the living room. Boss discovered dynamite in the corner. He picked up an armful of explosives and handed it to one of the men. As Kehoe left the burning property in his Ford truck, he stopped to tell those fighting the fire that they should get in the, get to the school and they drove off. This is a bit odd. North Wind Explosion Classes at Bath Consolidated School began at 8.30am. Kehoe had set an alarm clock in the basement of the north wing of the school which detonated the dynamite and pills hold he had hidden there at about 8.45 in the morning. Rescuers heading to the scene of the Kehoe farm fire heard the explosion at the school building and turned back in that direction. Parents within the rural community rushed to the school. The school building resembled a war zone, with 38 people killed in the initial explosion, mostly the children. Eyewitnesses and survivors were interviewed afterwards by newspaper reporters. First grade teacher Bernice Sterling told an Associated Press reporter that the explosion was like an earthquake. The air seemed to be full of children and flying desks and books. Children were tossed high in the air. Some were catapulted out of the building. Eyewitness Robert Gates said the scene was pure chaos at the school. Mother after mother came running into the schoolyard and demanded information about her child and on seeing the lifeless form lying on the lawn, sobbed and swooned. In no time, more than 100 men were at work tearing away the debris of the school. And nearly as many women were frantically poring over the timber and broken bricks for traces of their children. I saw more than one woman lift clusters of bricks held together by mortar heavier than the average man could have handled without a crowbar. Ellsworth recounted, I saw one mother, Miss Eugene Hart, sitting on the back of it, sitting on the bank a short distance from the school, with a little dead girl on each side of her, and holding a little boy, Percy, who died a short time after they got him to the hospital. This was about the time Kehoe blew up his car in the street, severely wounding Perry, the oldest child, on Mr and Mrs Hart. The north wing of the school had collapsed, leaving the edge of the roof on the ground. Ellsworth recalled that there was a pile of children of about five or six under the roof. He volunteered to drive back to his farm and get a rope heavy enough to pull the school roof off the children's bodies. Returning to his farm, he saw Kehoe driving in the opposite direction, heading toward the school. He grinned and waved his hand, Ellsworth said. When he grinned, I could see both rows of his teeth. Truck explosion. 
Kehoe drove up to the school about half an hour after the first explosion. He saw Superintendent Hugh and summoned him over to his truck. Charles Horson testified at, his, at the inquest that he saw two men grapple over some type of long gun. Before Kehoe detonated the dynamite stored in his truck. Immediately killing himself, Shook Nelson McFarren, a retired farmer, and Cleo Clayton, an eight-year-old second grader. Clayton has survived the first blast and then wandered out of the school building. He was killed by fragmentation from the exploding vehicle. The truck explosion spread debris over a large area and caused extensive damage to cars parked a half block away. With their roofs catching on fire from the burning gasoline, it injured several others and mortally wounded postmaster Glenn O. Smith, who lost a leg and died before making it to the hospital. O. H. Bush recalled that one of his crew bound up the wounds of Glenn Smith the postmaster, his leg had been blown off. Another sip. That's better. Rescue and recovery, or should I say rescue, no, or should I say recovery and rescue. The telephone operators stayed at their stations for hours to summon doctors, undertakers, area hospital workers and anyone else who might help. The Lansing Fire Department sent several firefighters and its chief, local physician J.A. Crum and his wife, a nurse who had both served in World War I, turned their bath drugstore into a triage centre. The dead bodies were taken to the town hall, which was used as a mug. Hundreds of people worked in the wreckage all day into and into the night, in an effort to find and rescue any children pinned underneath. Area contractors sent all their men to assist, and many other people came to the scene in response to pleas for help. Eventually, 34 firefighters and the chief of the Lansing Fire Department arrived, as did several Michigan State Police officers who managed traffic to and from the scene. The injured and dying were transported to Sparrow Hospital and St. Lawrence Hospital in Lansing. The construction of the St. Lawrence facility had been financed in large part by Lawrence Price, Nellie Kehoe's uncle and formerly an executive in charge of Oldsmobile Lansing Car Assembly. Michigan Governor Fred W. Green arrived during the afternoon. 
of the disaster and assisted in the relief work. Carting bricks away from the scene, the Lawrence Baking Company of Lansing sent a truck filled with pies and sandwiches which were served to rescuers in the township's community hall. During the search for survivors and victims, rescuers found an additional 500 pounds, 230 kilos of dynamite which had failed to detonate in the south wing of the school. The search was halted to allow the Michigan State Police to disarm disarm the devices and they found an alarm clock timed to go off at 8.45am. Investigators speculated that the initial explosion may have caused a short circuit in the second set of bombs, preventing them from detonating. They searched the building and then returned to the recovery work. Police and fire officials gathered at the Kehoe farm to investigate the fires. State troopers had searched for Nellie Kehoe throughout Michigan, thinking that she was at a tuberculosis sanatorium, but her charred remains were found the day after the disaster. Among the ruins of the farm, all the Kehoe farm buildings were destroyed. Kehoe's two horses had burned to death, trapped inside the barn. Their carcasses were found with their legs hobbled together with wire, preventing their escape or rescue when the farm's buildings blew up and caught fire. Investigators found a wooden sign wired to the farm's fence with Kehoe's last message stenciled on it. Criminals are made, not born. <coughs> that doesn't make sense, but anyway, you know, that was his thinking. The aftermath. The American Red Cross set up an operations center at the Chrome drugstore and took the lead in providing an aid and comfort to the victims. The Lansing Red Cross headquarters stayed open until 11.30 that night to answer phone calls, update the list of dead and injured, and provide information and planning services for the following day. The local community responded generously, as reported at the time by the Associated Press, a sympathetic public assured the rehabilitation of the stricken community aid was tendered freely in the hope that the grief of those who have lost loved ones might be even slightly mitigated. The Red Cross managed donations sent to pay for both the medical expenses of the survivors and the burial costs of the dead. In a few weeks, 5,284 and 15 cents equivalent to 70, equivalent to 77,774 pounds in 2019 was raised through donations including 2,500 from the Clinton County Board of Supervisors and $2,000 from the Michigan legislature the disaster received nationwide coverage in the days following. 
serving headlines with Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic crossing. Though Lindbergh's crossing received much more attention and eliciting a national outpouring of grief, newspaper headlines from across the United, the United States characterised Kehoe as a maniac, a madman and a fiend. People from across the world expressed sympathy to the families and the community of Bath, including letters from some Italian school children. One fifth grade class wrote, Even if we are small, we understand all the sorrow and misfortune that has struck our dear brothers. Another Italian class wrote, We are praying to God to give it the unfortunate mothers and fathers the strength to bear the great sorrow that has descent on them. We are near to you in spirit. Keo's body was claimed by one of his sisters and his body was buried in an unmarked grave in the pauper section of Mount Rest Cemetery in St. John's, Michigan. The Price family buried Nellie Price Kehoe in a Lansing cemetery under her maiden name. Vehicles from outlying areas and the surrounding states descended upon Bath by thousands. Over 100,000 vehicles passed through on Saturday alone, an enormous amount of traffic for the area. Some Bath citizens regarded this as an unwanted intrusion into their time of grief but most accepted it as a show of sympathy and support from surrounding communities. Burials of individual victims started that Friday, two days after the disaster. Funerals and burials continued on Saturday and Sunday until all the dead were buried. For a time following the tragedy, the town and Kehoe Burned out farm continued to attract curios- curios- attract curiosity seekers. Coroner's inquest. The coroner arrived at the scene on the day of the disaster and swore in six community leaders that afternoon to serve as a jury investigating the death of Superintendent Hill. Informal testimony had been taken on May 19th and the formal coroner's inquest started on May 23rd. The Clinton County Prosecutor conducted the examination and more than 50 people testified before the jury. During his testimony, David Hart stated that Kehoe had told him that he has killed a horse and the New York Times reported people are saying that Kehoe had an ungovernable temper and seemed to have a mania for the killing things. Neighbours testified that he had been writing, been wiring the buildings at his farm about that time and that he was evasive about his reasons. Well, you know, if, you plant, if you're planting bombs, you know, you're not exactly going exactly to come out and say it. <clears throat> not unless you want massive attention. Kehoe's neighbour, Sidney J. Howard, testified that after the fire began, 
at the Kehoe farm. Kehoe warned him and three men to leave there, saying, Boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. Three telephone line men working near Bath testified that Kehoe passed them in his truck on the road toward the school, and they saw him arrive there. His truck swerved and stopped in front of the building. In the next instant, according to the linemen, the truck blew up and one of them was struck by a shrapnel. Other witnesses testified that Kehoe paused after stopping, calling Hyuk over to the truck and that the two men struggled before Kehoe's truck was blown up. Although there was never any doubt that Kehoe was the perpetrator, the jury was asked to determine if the school board or its employees were guilty of criminal, criminal negligence. After more than a week of testimony, the jury exonerated the school board and its employees in its verdict. The jury concluded that Kehoe conducted himself sanely and so concealed his operations that there was no cause to suspect any of his actions. And we further find that the school board and Frank Smith, janitor of the school building, were not negligent in and about their duties and were not guilty of any negligence in not discovering Kehoe's plan. The inquest determined that Kehoe murdered Superintendent Emery Hook on the morning of May 18th. It was also the jury's verdict that the school was blown up as part of a plan and that Kehoe alone, without the aid of conspirators, murdered 43 people in total, including his wife, Nellie. Suicide was determined to be the cause of Kehoe's death which brought the total number of dead to 44 at the time of the inquest. On August 22nd, three months after the bombing, fourth grader Beatrice Gibbs died following his surgery. Hers, following hip surgery, sorry. Hers was the 45th and final death directly attributed to the Bath School disaster which made it the deadliest attack ever to occur in an American school. Richard Fritz, whose older sister, Marjorie Fritz, was killed in the explosion, was injured in the explosion and died almost one year later of myocarditis at the age of eight. Although Richard is not included on many lists of the victims, his death from... Myocarditis is thought to have been directly caused by an infection resulting from his injuries. Rebuilding. Governor Green quickly called for donations to aid the townspeople and created the Bath Relief Fund. With money supplied by donors, the state and local governments, people from around the country donated to the fund. School resumed on September 5th, 1927 and for the 1927-1928 school year was held in the community hall, township hall and two retail buildings. Most of the surviving students returned 
the board appointed O.M. Brandt of Luther, Michigan, to succeed Hyuk as superintendent. The Lansing architect, Rowan Holmes, donated construction plans and the school board approved the contracts for the new building on September 14th. On September 15th, Michigan's U.S. Senator, James J. Cousins, presented his personal check for $75,000, which, which is equivalent to a million, just over a million dollars in 2019, to the Bath Construction Fund to help build the new school. The board demolished the damaged portion of the school and constructed a new ring with the donated funds. During the construction, the reconstruction, sorry, dynamite was found in the building on three separate occasions. The James Cousins Agricultural School was dedicated on August 18th, 1928. The Kehoe farm was completely ploughed to ensure that no explosives were hidden in the ground and was sold at auction to pay the mortgage. Legacy Artist Carlton W. Angel presented the board with a memorial statue in 1928 entitled Girl with a Cat, also known colloquially as Girl with a Kitten, the Bath School and Museum in the school district's middle school contains many items connected with the disaster, including the statue. In 1975, the Cousins building was demolished and the site was redeveloped as the James Cousins Memorial Park, dedicated to the victims. At the centre of the park is the Bath Consolidated School's original cupola, which survived the disaster and remained on the school until the building was torn down. After some debate, a Michigan State Historical Marker was installed at the park in 1991 by the Michigan Historical Commission. In 2002, a bronze plaque bearing the names of those killed in the disaster was placed on a large stone near the entrance of the park. The town announced on November 3rd, 2008, that tombstones had been donated for Emil and Robert Drummond. The last two bombing victims whose graves were still unmarked. A grant from a foundation paid for the grave markers. In September 2014, a gravestone was installed at the grave of Richard A. Fritz, whose death in 1928 was attributed to injuries sustained in the explosion. The gravestone was paid for by an author writing about the disaster for a book. A documentary, a documentary on the on the disaster, was released in 2011, including interviews with various survivors, which had been taped starting in 2004. On May 18, 2017, the the disaster's 90th anniversary was marked with a panel discussion at the Bath Middle School. Medical experts have seen this unique act of historic school terrorism as a way to gain a perspective on paediatric patterns of injury and future disaster preparedness.
So that was the Bath School disaster. And Andrew P. Kehoe. So that will be it for today. Again, we are now now available on Overcast, and a part of that we are also now available on Apple Podcasts. So if you'd like to support us on any on any of those platforms, it will be greatly appreciated. Primarily on Apple Podcasts, if you would like to support us by leaving us a review and a like rating. That would be much appreciated. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at rthinetruthshow. Also, follow me on Instagram as well at Coach Billy Byrne, if you want to, of course. But yeah, that would be it for today. Uh, I hope you are staying safe. Sticking to a two-metre guideline. You know, washing your hands. Keeping yourself busy. And yeah. Until next time. Bye guys.